ago this Sunday. And exactly one year ago this past Tuesday, my wife passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. So uh, still going through that. We just went through the, the anniversary of her passing. Uh, I have five kids, five wonderful kids, because we didn't want six. And uh, I have uh, 19 grandchildren. So uh, we're, we're all still kind of going through. You said there's a place to put a, a water bottle right there. Okay. Um, we're going through this, this new season of life, and uh, it, is, it is definitely one that I don't recommend anybody go through, but we all will. And when you do, it is certainly good. I don't know how anybody goes through this without hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, it certainly is a blessing to know where she's at and to know that um, we, we will meet again and that uh, you know, she is with the Lord at this point. So the, the very first slide that's going to be up is a, is a, well, the next one, is a marker on the Camino de Santiago. Anybody ever heard of the Camino de Santiago? A couple of you have, yeah. It's a, it's a pilgrimage that start, you actually start in France, and you follow these yellow arrows. Uh, you go up over the Pyrenees Mountains. Now, my wife and I trained, uh, we did this for our 40th anniversary, because nothing says I love you like walking 20 miles a day with a backpack and sleeping in a hostel with 40 strangers. So um, we trained in Il up, you know, upper Illinois, northwest suburbs, flat. And then the first day, you're 14 miles of this, going up the Pyrenees and then down the Pyrenees. So it's a total of 17 miles that first day. We were not prepared at, at all. But as we, as we walked the, the rest of the Camino and met a lot of different people and had a lot of different experiences, uh, we, we found that less than 8% of the nation of Spain, Galatia and Spain, uh, professed to go to church. Less than 8%. And that was shocking to us. And then uh, as I came home, I thought, well, you know, what about America? Uh, and this was, again, nine years ago. It was pre-COVID. And at that point, uh, less than 8% of men attend church in America. Now, that doesn't just happen. That wasn't something that one day, one Sunday, you know, 92% of men in America said, nah, I'm not doing it. I'm not going. It's rather a, a slow, it's almost an erosion. You know, if you, if you see out, out on the river or you see in the, in your, even in your yard, you'll see an erosion that takes place, but you don't really see it because it's, it's slow almost imperceptible, until all of a sudden, hey, we have a crisis here. We got something that's really wrong. And that's true of, of what's happened in America. Uh, it's what's ha happened across our, our world in the, um, the loss of any kind of commitment to the Lord. I don't know why I wear glasses. I can't see with them. I see better without them, but uh, uh, for some reason they're supposed to work. So, uh, And here's the reality of these 92% of men in America. And, I, and again, I apologize. I, I, I realize that there are a lot of women in the congregation, but for the last 10 years with Man in the Mirror, I talked to men. That's, that's who I talked to. I was a pastor for 35 years, including 10 years in Quincy. We started the church there. We actually started the church in a school building uh, there. And so I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with Chillicothe. And, uh, but 10 years ago, I started with Man in the Mirror. And so now I'm, my focus is on uh, men, because we strongly believe, I strongly believe, as goes the man, so goes the church. And as goes the church, so goes the community. And as goes the community, so goes uh, our, our culture. And our culture is in desperate need of seeing the reality of faith, the reality of 
the word of God and of hope. And uh, we, we, we are responsible for showing that. We are ambassadors for Christ. So that imperceptible erosion, it wasn't that 92% of men woke up and said, I'm not doing this. It rather, and again, it's not so much that they're unchurched, it's that they're de-churched. They used to attend. They used to go. Uh, many, many of these 92% used to attend church. And then something happened, and, and COVID is certainly a, a huge catastrophic uh, impact on church attendance. But as Pastor and I were talking, most of those that left the church over COVID were on the fringe anyway. Now, does that mean they're hopeless or we don't pray about them or work for them? Uh, absolutely not. We, we need to take a look internal at who we are and then say, now, how do we take this message external? How do we live it for others? But for any number of reasons, people have left the church. And um, our, our challenge is, how do we live a life? How do we live a, a, a Christian life in a culture that has rejected Christ, that has you know, ignored him for the most part? Paul wrote to the Corinthians that uh, the natural man cannot conceive, cannot apprehend, cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit. They're literally moronic to him. So when we pray, what are you doing that for? When we, when we, do you know of any other place that you go to where you stand and sing? Most people would throw you out of their restaurant if you stood up and started singing or uh, in the grocery store. There's not other places where we do that. You don't go to work and say, hey, let's, why don't we all... Stand and sing together. But here we do it. And the, the natural man goes, what are you doing that for? Matter of fact, I have a sermon that I preach on worship from Psalm 96. And the title of it is, I'm not taking a shower. Why should I sing? And that, that came from, I was playing golf with a guy one day. And, and he was you know, challenging me about church and church life. And he goes, what do you sing for? He goes, I'm not taking a shower. Why should I sing? And that's usually the only other place men will sing. So how do, we, how do we reflect what Christ fully intended? So I've got a quote up here, the big idea. The big idea is this, Satan does not tempt us just to make us do wrong things. He tempts us to make us lose what God has put into us through redemption, namely the possibility of being of value to God. That was A.W. Tozer that said that. The possibility of being of value to God. What is that value? Satan doesn't want us just to sin. He wants to strip us of that value or the possibility of being of value to God. What is that value? Well, it's basically the glory, the glory of God. Any of you take, I, I asked this yesterday morning, and there were about two guys, and they got picked on because, you know, I, you, when you answer this, so I'll, I'll give you the warning. How many of you, took catechism as a kid. You went through catechism. Anybody? Okay. Because we sat and had breakfast, I'm going to pick on you. Marty, right? Okay. Marty, question number one. What is the chief end of man? All right. You forgot it, didn't you? <laughs> Anybody know? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God, and my wife used to say, and to annoy him forever. But it's actually to enjoy him forever. To glorify God. Okay, so that's what we're here for. That, what is the chief end? Why are we here? Why were you born? To glorify God. Okay, what does that mean? 
What does it mean to glorify God? Well, the word literally is doxa. The Greek word is doxa. And it means to throw light on. Why do we throw light on something? To reveal it. What is the chief end of man? To reveal God. So what does Satan want us to uh, tempt us to not do? To not reveal God. That's his ultimate goal, is that we just live life. You can live as full of a life as you want, but just don't reveal God. Don't show that God was in this. Don't reveal that he is part of it. So why don't we do that? So I told you we converted the school building into a, into a uh, church building. And uh, as in the process of doing that, we took the, you know, the, the, their old auditorium kind of like this and made it into our church auditorium and converted all these different things. And I get a phone call from a, a trucking guy that was about a mile and a half up the road from where our church was. And he goes, hey, I hear you're, you're remodeling that old building. And I said, yeah. And he goes, could you use some carpet? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, we have this big, huge roll of carpet that was damaged by a tow motor, so it's junk. Uh, but he said, you know, it's not that damaged. I think you might be able to just rip off the edge of it and use it. So I drove down, took a look at it. It was a huge roll of carpet. And it was like, oh, this is awesome. And he said, well, you need anything else? And I said, what else you got? You know, I'm a poor preacher. Sure, I'm going to take whatever you got. And he goes over to this roll shutter door on the end of a trailer. And he goes, this thing's full of stuff. <laughs> you got it. He realized about midway through that he's talking to a pastor. He better change his tune here. And so he said, it's full of stuff. That's become our family motto ever since then. You know, we get our lives so full of stuff. So when Jesus came to the man by the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, when he said to him, do you want to be whole? That's that value to God. How do we get to that place? And we can't get there, or we don't get there. We won't get there because we're full of stuff. We're so full of, of things, of, of this life, that there's no room for what God wants us to do, to be, to become. And, and so uh, there's a huge difference in our culture. Our culture is full. But would you say our culture is whole? No. Our churches are full, but are we whole? No. And the reason why we're not is because we're full of stuff. And so how do we come to this place of revealing God? If you brought a Bible with you, if you open it to John chapter 5, I do not have it up on the screen, so you're either going to need to follow along with me or follow along in your own word. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now you can picture this scene, can't you? Uh, I actually have the, the Reed family Bible. Uh, it goes all the way back into the 1600s. It's this big, huge leather thing and uh, very brittle pages. And it's it, these woodcut paintings. And so there's one, I, I specifically looked to see, did they have the Pool of Bethesda? Sure enough, it's got, you know, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's got a lot of different pictures to it. But here's the Pool of Bethesda. And it's this idyllic place. I mean, it's got palm trees. It's got these nice covered colonnades that have uh, probably wisteria or ivy growing through the colonnade. And, and here's, here's people reclining, you know, the, the old angelic look. And, and, and Jesus comes up and he's got the halo and, and he's looking down on this man that is laying there. Uh, you know, the man's kind of in this you know, shocked look that Jesus, 
Folks, that's not what this was like. It was not that idyllic of a place. Matter of fact, the next part of the verse says, here a great number of disabled people used to lie. This was probably more like walking into a homeless encampment in Chicago. This was probably more like walking into a tent city of a bunch of people who have no hope. They are hopeless in their life, hopeless in their condition, and certainly hopeless in any kind of future. And they've they've resolved and residing in just this squalor. This was probably a place no one went to purposely. No one would go to this pool of Bethesda uh, knowing that, you know, I, I just heard this yesterday, somebody said to me, that it was actually kind of a, almost a, a witchcraft voodoo place. It was a place where there, there was not a, uh, an invitation that said, oh, come down to the pool of Bethesda and enjoy your afternoon. You get the point? This was a stinky place. This was a hopeless place. And this is the place Jesus chose to go to. What does that say to us? That in our culture where we are seeing full and emptiness and smelly and, and, and just lifelessness, that's where Jesus would show up. At. And he comes here and it goes, goes on to say, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, Lying there and learned that he had been there in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to be whole? Do you want to get well? What a question. But here we see, the, the very first thing is, I, I don't think Jesus just walked in, looked down on him and said, hey buddy, rough paraphrase, you know, do you want to get whole? I don't think he did that. We had, we had two men in my church when I pastored up in the northwest suburbs. We had two men in wheelchairs. One of them was a 17-year-old kid with Duchesne's muscular dystrophy. and uh, The other one was a, a man who had dived into the Fox River and broke his neck. And he was basically like Johnny Erickson Tata. He was paralyzed from his neck down. But he was our second-grade teacher, second-grade boys teacher. He was, you know, he was very active in his wheelchair. He did a lot of things. He went to Sox games. I mean, he was... He was just a, a great active guy. He was probably in his 50s at this point. And one day as I you know, was walking by, he was sitting in, you know, in his wheelchair, and I was walking by, he said, hey, Ray, how'd, how'd class go today? And he goes, Ron, would you do me a favor? I said, sure. And he goes, would you sit down? So I said, sure. You know, and I, I sat down, and he goes, now you're on my level. You see, for all these years, people just walk by and talk to somebody in a wheelchair, right? We, we talk down to them. So I don't think Jesus did that. I don't think he came up to this guy, hey, you want to be whole? I think he got down and he got in this guy's face and he said, buddy, do you want to be whole? He got on his level. Now, obviously not spiritually, not physically, but emotionally and spiritually. He got down to where he knew that you need this. And I think sometimes we, uh, when we look at our culture, we're looking down on a culture. And God is telling us, you know, sometimes we need to get down where they're at and say, do you really want this? He'd been there 38 years. Well, we're told he'd been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know that he laid there, but 38 years, he'd been an invalid. 38 years. 
And I've always said, that's so hard for me to even imagine because I'm only 39 myself. <laughs> Mentally, that's where I'm at. I said that one time, I was preaching to a, this message to a group of African-American pastors, about 350 African-American pastors. And I said that statement that, you know, I'm only 30, 39 myself. And a guy in the back of the room yells out, that's been a hard 39 years. <laughs> yes, sir, it has been. But he, 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 for 38 years, this guy had gotten used to this little box that he lived in. Would you agree? He'd gotten used to depending upon everybody else. He'd gotten used to the fact that, that there's not going to be any change. Oh, there was still some hope. Even though this was a place of hopelessness, they went there because there was something to hold on to. Some small little nugget of hope that if the angel stirs the water and I can get there first, I can change my life. But I imagine after 38 years of doing this, it was kind of a hopeless situation even in that place. 38 years. What have you been stuck in for 38 years? Where have you been stuck? I, I, I can't tell you, traveling across the nation to see uh, you know, men's group after men's group, to see church after church, to see uh, family after family stuck in their box. This is, this is who we are. Especially to see men just kind of get used to this is our life. There will be a little bit of nostalgia, but remember when we used to do this? But we kind of get used to this, this is who we are. We, we begin to develop this mindset that if there's any kind of change that's going to happen, it's probably just going to be a surface change. 38 years. 38 years of dependence on somebody to come and grab his cot and drag him through the streets and deposit. 38 years for somebody to come back that evening and grab his cot and drag him back home. 38 years of absolute dependence. And the, who was he with? It says that you know, he, as he laid there, there was a great number of disabled people. The blind. In our culture today, <laughs> there is none so blind as he who will not see. But we live among the blind to real problems, therefore real answers. And we just want to scratch the surface with what's happening in our culture. 2 Peter chapter 1 gives us a tremendous challenge. Add to your faith virtue and knowledge and godliness and brotherly love. It says, add these, these things to you. And if they are in you and abound, they make you that you're neither idle nor unfruitful in your knowledge of Christ. They, these qualities, make you that you're not going to be idle or unfruitful. 38 years, idle, unfruitful. But it's, it says, add to, add to. Add, I, when I preach that message, I use a big 10-foot ladder, step ladder. And, and each, each one of those qualities has a, you know, I, I step up on the step. It scares people to death because of by the time I'm on top of this ladder and I literally get up on top of the ladder uh, because when you've climbed, when you've added, they make you that you're neither idle nor unfruitful. But it goes on to say, he that lacks these things, if that ladder is leaning against that wall and I don't climb that ladder, he that lacks these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and he actually forgets that he was purged from his old sins. So if I'm not growing in my faith, if I'm, not, if I'm not being discipled in my walk with Christ, I'm actually going to come to the place where either I forget it or everybody else around me forgets it. Yeah, remember when he got baptized? Remember when he got saved? Remember when he made a decision for Christ? If I'm not adding, discipling. If, 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 I'm a, if I've been a Christian for 35 years, 
But I haven't grown. I've been a Christian for one year 35 times. It needs to become that I'm growing and I'm changing and I'm, I, I'm adding to my faith. And then he says, the lame. We don't use that word. It's not politically correct to call somebody lame. But you, we do use that word in other sense. I'll bet if I asked any one of the young people in this room uh, if you ever used the word lame, you do. When? That was a lame excuse. That was lame. And we do the same thing. We use it as lame. Uh, the, the, it started in the Garden of Eden where Jesus or God comes to, to Adam and you, know, you ate of the fruit. What did what, you do? And he goes, it's that woman you gave me. That, that, that's a problem. That was the first lame excuse and we've, we've polished it to an art form to be able to use lame excuses for why we do something. It's not my fault. Don't blame me. I didn't vote for him. You know, and so we have this lame excuse. And then paralyzed. Paralyzed by, by fear, basically. We don't do stuff because we're afraid. We're afraid of change. What, what would you need to change to be whole? What would need to be different in your life to be whole? We're paralyzed by fear of commitment. I'd, I'd have to commit to a few things. And we're paralyzed by that. And because what if, if, I, if I commit, what if God asks me to do this? What if God tells me to do this? And we're just paralyzed by fear. I don't want to look stupid. That's the number one fear of every man. Why do we not get in groups? Why do we not serve? Why do we not? I don't want to look stupid. And so we, we don't do the changes. So here's the problem. Our disability. I think it's up there. Problem, two problems. Our disability, number one, we fill up with stuff. With substitutes. Lesser gods. Possessions. Positions. Power. Prestige. And it leaves little room. When we're so full of stuff, it leaves very little room for real. For the whole. So I shared this yesterday with the, the men. My son was a missionary in Cape Town, South Africa for the last 10 years. They literally just moved to St. Louis this year. And we went, got to go visit them a couple of times. And <clears throat> they lived right by the Cape of Good Hope. They were about a 20-minute drive down uh, the coastline to the Cape of Good Hope. <clears throat> so we were driving there. And along the side of the road, there's these uh, soldiers, it looked like. They were, they were actually uh, uh, police wearing you know, police garb, but a yellow, bright yellow vest. And they were holding what looked like uh, military rifles. And I said, what, Josh, what's the deal? About every 100 yards, there'd be one of these guys holding the rifle. And he goes, they're baboon patrol. Baboon patrol? But Josh actually had three baboons break into his house one time. We worry about raccoons in our attic. They have baboons in the attic. But uh, he said they, they, they shoot the baboons, but not with guns or not with bullets. It's with pepper spray paint. Those guns are paintball guns. And they shoot these pepper spray paintballs. It hits them. You know, they, they don't like it, so they run back up the mountains. But he goes, that's temporary. There's a way that they permanently catch them and remove them to the other side of the, the nation. How do they do that? And he stopped along the side of the road. He goes, you see that termite hill? And there were all over there were these big, giant termite hills. You've seen them on you know, National Geographic. But he said, they'll put, the, you know, the termite hills are petrified, and they've got holes because of different things, holes through them. And he goes, they'll put candy down in that hole, one that is, you know, fairly small. And the baboons come up and they stick their hand down in that hole and they grab the candy. And then they, all they have to do is walk up to them and shoot them with a the tranquilizer gun and, and you know, uh, tranquilizer. Put a net over them, take them to the other side. So that's all? He goes, that's it. 
So all they'd have to do is let loose of the candy and they could pull their arm back out. But they won't do that. They're baboons. They're stupid. All we have to do to experience freedom is let loose of that candy. But instead, we hang on to our stuff and we hold on while Satan comes and strips us of being of value to God. Why? I probably shouldn't say because we're baboons and we're stupid. So I won't say that. No, it's because we, we just don't see. I'm filling my life with stuff. And if I would just let some of that loose. But Pat Morley has a word for it. Affluenza. We are stricken with affluenza. We have so much stuff that we don't have room for whole. So we focus on the externals. We focus on the pool stirring. We focus on bigger and better. We focus on you know, what, whatever is outside of our faith in Christ when what we need to do is Ephesians 3, how high, how long, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ so that we can be filled to the full. I've been doing a lot of studying lately of that little phrase, henna phrase, so that. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, the, the high intercessory prayer, high priestly intercessory prayer. He prayed all these things, but every prayer request, so that this will happen. And you see, if we don't come to that place of understanding, uh, you know, Paul, Paul also prayed, I pray this so that this will happen. If we just pray these prayers, or if we just read this scripture, or if we just attend this service, or if we just serve this thing, and we don't understand there's a so that in it, then we're, we're just going to stay busy with stuff. It's got to be taking a look at what's the end game of this thing. What do I hope to accomplish? Why were, are we here to glorify God? This next slide has quite a bit of stuff to it that we're going to walk through. I don't know how much you can actually see. But uh, right in the middle, the significance and security, that's whole. To, to have genuine significance, I'm accepted in the beloved. To have genuine security that, that you know, nothing shall over, overwhelm me, nothing shall overtake me. To know what it is to be whole. But what we do when we sacrifice or when we substitute uh, the externals, we start looking at, well, if I just had this, and over on the right-hand side, if I just had this, people, pleasures, possessions, positions, then I'd be happy. So we develop a goal-oriented lifestyle, and we reach the goal, and we find temporary partial satisfaction. Let me illustrate that. Boy, if that girl would just say yes to me, I'd, I'd like to go out with that girl. She'd just say yes. So we develop a, 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 a goal-oriented lifestyle. I'll brush my teeth with the right toothpaste. I'll wear the right deodorant. I'll put on the right cologne. I'll get the right car. I'll wear the right clothes. And everything that Madison Avenue says, I'll do that because they say if I do this, then I'll, I'll reach my goal. And we reach the goal. She says yes. Well, that, that was good, but I, I wanted to go out with me again. And so we do goal-oriented lifestyle, and she says yes again. And we, we continue to go through this. But every single time we find temporary partial satisfaction, let me illustrate that. Well, if she would just say yes to us getting married, then we'd be happy. So we do all the necessary things, and she finally says yes, and we, we get married, and we find out, well, that's not all it's cracked up to be. Well, if we just had kids, then we'd be happy. And so we set out to have kids, and we reach that goal, and we find out very quickly they're not all they're cracked up to be. Well, if, if they would just move out of the house and go someplace, then we'd be happy. 
So you get the point. We're always in this cycle, right? Always. Every, every day of our life, we're looking at, well, if we just had this. You know, my wife and I used to sit on the back porch and we, we would dream. We would think about these things. And, and so then when you, when you get those dreams, you start working toward those dreams, right? That's, that's, what we, that's our life. That's what we do. How many of you have reached every goal you've ever set in your life? <laughs> None of us. So our goals get blocked before we reach the goal. And if they get blocked by people or circumstances, those are the two things that block our goals. People step in the way. I want to make that left-hand turn before the green arrow turns red and somebody gets in my way. And so I'm going to get angry at them. I'm going to get angry at the situation. I don't know. Maybe you guys are perfect and don't get angry in traffic. But, but uh, you know, we, we get angry because somebody blocked my goal. But also circumstances block our goal. Who's in charge of circumstances? God is. So God steps in and our goal gets blocked. And what do we do? Well, the, those five things down there, the first thing, whether it's people or, or circumstances that block it, is disappointment. But when we get upset with disappointment in, our, in, in what God might be doing, is to forget Romans 8, 28. And I'm also going to add 29. Romans 8, 28, we have memorized, right? All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are what? What's his purpose? If somebody quotes Romans 8, 28 to you, you're lying on the hospital bed and somebody comes in and says, hey, buddy, all things work together for good. You got permission to punch them because they have taken that verse out of context and that's not what it's saying. It's all things work together for the good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, verse 29, that we might be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. You see, the all things are making us more like Jesus. The all things in our life are to, to whittle away everything that ain't God, everything that ain't Jesus, everything that ain't his character. I, I, I use that very inappropriate phrase because I worked for a summer at a baseball school down in Branson, Missouri, and every week we would take the students, the kids, to uh, uh, Silver Dollar City. And at Silver Dollar City, there was this guy, long white beard, and he sat there whittling. And he whittled these birds and dogs, little, little birds, little dogs. And they looked lifelike. I mean, they, they looked like if you breathed on them, it was going to fly away. And I didn't say this, but I read this in a book. that somebody said to that guy, how do you do that? How do you make this lifelike bird, this lifelike dog? And he goes, well, you start with a good piece of wood and you whittle away everything that ain't dog. That's what Jesus is doing in your life. He made the good piece of wood, and now he's whittling away everything that ain't God. Amen? That's when, we, when, when our goal of that stuff gets blocked, it's because God's saying, that's not making you like me. That's making you like the world. And so in his, in his infinite mercy and his severe mercy, he will step in and whittle us away. The second part of that is discouragement. And to be discouraged is to forget a tremendous psalm, Psalm 77. I'm going to read it to you, but um, I, I want you to just listen as though you were having right now a bad day, but even more, a bad night. What time am I supposed to be done? 11.45? Oh, okay, well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> my, see, my job is to make your pastor look really good. Anytime he goes over. So they'll, they'll say, man, he went over. But remember when that Reed guy preached? That was going over. So, 
All right, so Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God, hear me. You ever been on your knees with that prayer? When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. I have written in the margin of my Bible, why only then? When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. If God's goal is to have me seek Him, and the only time I seek Him is when I'm in distress, what do you think God's going to do in my life? Out of His love and His mercy and His grace, He's going to say, you haven't sought me lately. Let's, let's get you on your knees. I've spent a lot of time in hospitals on my knees. with. We have a 14-year-old granddaughter that is medically complex. She went into intensive care the minute she was born and spent the first four years of her life in intensive care. And I've spent a lot of time on my knees praying, oh God, please, please. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. By the way, she's doing tremendous. At night I stretched out untiring hands and my soul could not be comforted. I remembered you, oh God, and I groaned. Now this remembering of him is, I remember when days were good. I mused, my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about those former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs of the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired. And he asked six questions that I guarantee every person in this room has asked at some point. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise faded for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And then there's a Selah. Think about those questions. And then the psalmist makes a clear choice. He chooses, instead of continuing down this path of questioning and of complaining and groaning and whining, instead of choosing this path of 38 years of just laying there waiting for something to happen, he instead chooses this path. To this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. And he says this four times. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works. I will consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. So instead of laying there in, the, in his night of, of moaning, in, in, his, in his dark night of the soul, he gets out his journal. And he starts remembering all the times God did answer, that God was there, that God did perform that miracle, that God did answer that prayer. Amen? That's what we've got to do. That's when we come to the place of, of being whole is when we forget the discouragement and we remember. By the way, the next three, despair. To despair is to forget this too shall pass. To, to continue to have hope. Don't let disappointment fester. Don't let discouragement fester because that leads to despair. And then doubt. Does God care? Does God know? Does he even see this? Yes. Yes, he does. And, and at that point, by the way, this is again for men, but all of us. At that point, you know, we need to put on the helmet of truth because we're being beat up with falsehood. We need to put on our helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, because we're, we're again getting falsehood. But we need the shield of faith. And the shield of faith in Ephesians 6 
is not the, the arm shield with the, the small dagger that a, that a Roman soldier would have. It was the war shield. It was the front line shield. It was probably about a, a, a three foot by four foot, almost like a sheet of plywood. It was covered in leather because when the fiery dart would hit that leather, it would sizzle out. But the other thing about it, just like these chairs, I, I'm very familiar with these church chairs. I've had them in the last three churches I was at. And they've got coupling wings, right? You, you link these chairs together. Well, these shields had that same thing. They linked shield to shield to shield. And it made a wall. When a soldier stood by himself behind his shield, he was defenseless. But when he was a part of that wall, he could withstand and stand. So men, if you're feeling, women, if you're feeling, young people, if you're feeling all alone, it's probably because you are. Link that shield at that point of doubt, and you begin to hear somebody say, hey, I remember when God did this. I remember when, when we won this battle. So again, to know, to know hope. So what is whole? What does it mean to be whole? When Jesus says to this man, do you want to be whole? Not full. We've been looking at full. What is whole? We have four very quick things. Uh, actually, you need to back up one, I think. Nope, okay. Well, I need to go forward with one. <laughs> um, the first thing is connected. Every man needs other men. Look at this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. We need that shield. We need to stand together. I want to challenge you. Do you know, and, and women probably do in this room, so men, do you know three men that you're absolute friends with? 2 a.m. friends that you could call in the middle of the night and say, hey, I'm, I'm hurting. You could call like that psalmist in Psalm 77 and say, I, I don't even see God. I'm not hearing from Him. Could you pray with me? See, when we isolate, we do what King Saul did in 1 Samuel chapter 13. He was commanded, told by Samuel, wait till I come before you make the sacrifice. And, and he waits he waits the seven days. I'll be there in seven days. He waits seven days, but he doesn't wait the full length of time. And, and then he, he makes the sacrifice. And as soon as he makes the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. And, and Samuel says, what is this that you have done? And, and Saul gives three responses. Well, I saw, I saw the situation. I assessed the situation. I, you know, I, with, my, with my physical uh, and, and, and temporal eyes, I saw a negative situation. So I thought, but he thought with you know, uh, incomplete information. He thought with his, his, uh, his feet and, and, and his hands and, and his eyes instead of with his heart. I thought, and so I felt compelled. That's the progression of, or digression of sin. I saw, David saw Bathsheba. I thought, and so I felt compelled. I, I saw this bright and shiny, and I, I, I thought to myself, this is going to be good, so I felt compelled. You know, every, every single sin is those three things. I saw, Satan uses the eye gate, and then I, then I thought, wow, this will be good. And then I felt compelled. Friends are the ones who step in and say, I don't care what you're thinking, buddy, that's stupid. 
I don't, I don't care about your, you know, your, your I, I feel this way. You know, your feelings are fickle. And so we need that friend. Here's what happens. We have this line of shame. I'll talk to people about this, but I carry this in you know, right here. And I need a friend. I need several friends that'll say, yeah, let's, let's get down into this level. Let's start talking here. Let's get down into the areas where you're, uh, you, again, the, the paralyzed, way back with the, the man by the pool of Bethesda, you're paralyzed by fear or by sin or by guilt. Let's get past that. It's tough to get men to go there, but it's critical that we go there. It's critical that we have group life. If, you, if you're not a part of a, of a group, if you're not part of uh, other people helping you grow, then you are defenseless when Satan throws these attacks at you. I shared yesterday that my son-in-law is a cop up in Aurora. And um, he's, he's a beat cop, but he's also on the SWAT team. And just a few years back, three or four years ago, there was a, a shooting in Aurora at a factory. A guy got fired, and he went out to his van. Got, he, he knew he was going to be fired, so he's prepared, got his, his weapons. He came in, killed the five people of the HR team, and then went into the factory and sat and, and watched the door. Well, they called 911. First cop shows up. He shoots him. Fortunately, none of the cops were, were killed, but he shot that first cop. Cop was wearing bulletproof vests. He'd been trained, but he was alone. Second cop shows up, shot him. Trained, protected, but alone. Now they call the SWAT team. And the SWAT team is trained. And they are protected. And they are a team. And they went in and they took the guy out. We need to be on a spiritual SWAT team. If we're not, we're easy pickings for Satan to take us out and take us away. The next thing is uh, hold. I'll see what the slide says instead of what my notes say. We can go to the next one. Transform. Every man has a master. Philippians 3, 5 through 8, Paul says, I was this, I was this, I was this, and I consider it all rubbish that I might have Christ. You see, we look for a quick fix. We want to be the self-made man. We want behavior modification instead of heart transformation. We need, again, to have a transformed life. What is that? That's where I surrender to Christ. We used to sing the invitation hymn. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. We've got to come to that place of, of an absolute surrender. Lord, I am yours. I give my all. There was a offering plate going through a church one time and the little boy sitting there by himself, he had reached in, he had no money. So he put the offering plate down and he stood in it. He goes, I give you me, Jesus. We need to give us, give ourselves to Jesus. You don't like the result? You know, your system is perfectly designed to get the results you're getting. If you don't like the results you're getting right now, change your system. Change how you're living life. Number three, a man needs to be discipled. And the disciple is every man needs to grow. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul's prayer, I work, I labor to present every man mature in Christ. Discipleship is learning to become who Jesus will be. Could we go to the next slide uh, with that discipleship. Discipleship is learning to become who Jesus would be if he were you. Discipleship is learning to be who Jesus would be if he were you. 
right now, right now in our culture, post-COVID, less than 4%, one in 25 millennials are in any kind of a spiritual process, any kind of a growth process, any kind of church, Bible study, group of anything. One in 25. What's that going to do to the church? What is that going to do for Christianity when the boomers are gone? When, it, when it's one in 25 millennials that have any kind of faith life going. That's why we've started this ministry called 10,000 Spirit or this initiative called 10,000 Spiritual Fathers. We want to see 10,000 men who are willing to take on other men, millennial men, in learning the faith, building a relationship with them, teaching them truth. Grandparents, grandparents, there's a few of us in this room, it's up to us. It is entirely up to us to show, to live, to teach, to disciple these other men. The last one is, I did that one, challenged. Every man has a mission. Every man needs a mission. 2 Corinthians 5.20, you are Christ's ambassadors. You represent a different world, a different country, a different state. In this state, this state of states that needs to see faith, reality, hope, Christ, we're it. No one else is going to do this. It's us. We are Christ's ambassadors. But all too often, we're settling for a lesser mission. Retirement, you know, wealth, making a living, existing. We need to be challenged to hear and to heed the call for the kingdom. We need to be like William Wallace. You can take our lives but you'll never take our freedom. We need to be men who show the reality of Christ. And retired men, you especially are needed. You know there's no word for retirement in Scripture. We need to be on guard and on mission. I'm going to close with this. This won't take too awful long. I was um, uh, playing baseball. I, I had a scholarship for, for the very first baseball team out at Liberty University. I played, played my last year of L. I'd play, been playing at Kansas State, and I went out to Liberty to play. I'd accepted Christ at K-State and uh, found out that they were starting a baseball team, so I went there to play. Now, my goal was to play professional baseball. That was, you know, I, I, I'd had a knee injury that had kind of put a, a halt to that, but I, I wanted to play. And so I was having a pretty decent year, my, my last year, and um, then we went on this extended road trip. It was about a five-day road trip, and we played a triple header a Friday night and two games on Saturday against this one team that they learned, I batted second, and they learned my first time up that I could not hit an outside curveball. And so for the next 18 times up to the plate, all I saw was outside curveballs. And as a result, I set a record at Liberty University that will never be broken because they'll never let anybody play this long. I struck out 18 times in a row. I was not a pitcher, so that's not a good record. 18 times. I mean, I, could, I couldn't throw myself at a ball and get hit. It was just, you know, poof. So I'm sitting in the back of the bus on the way home. And I'm, you know, what's going on? And coach calls me up to the front of the bus. Al Worthington was our coach. He called me up to the front of the bus. And I thought he's going to say, Ron, you're, you're dropping your shoulder. You know, I figured he was going to coach me. And he says, Ron, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to play pro ball. He said, you're not that good. Wow. You got this encouragement thing down pat, coach. That was, you know, you got it. And he said, but here's what you are good at. These guys follow you. I was the only senior on the team. Because they, they follow your leadership. 
I need you to stop playing and be my assistant coach. All I heard was stop playing. Stop playing. This is my dream. This is my career. This is, I mean, everything I'd lived for for the previous 20 years, 22 years, was to play pro ball, and you're telling me no? He said, here's the deal. I want you to be my assistant coach on the condition that you go to seminary, and I'll make that part of your salary. All I heard was cemetery. What? And so, you know, he says, you know, the standard coaching thing, pray about it this weekend and let me know on Monday. But he said, I'll, I'll let you know, if you don't say yes, you're benched. You're not going to be playing anymore. So he said, you might as well say yes. So I get, I get home. We, we, we live fairly close to the, the church where the bus pulled up. And, and I, I, you know, I go, I'm walking home. And by the way, the last game was only like 45 minutes from where we lived. And so we didn't even shower. We just you know, jumped on the bus and went home. You'll shower in the dorm. So I'm still wearing my baseball uniform. And I, I walk into my house about to tell my wife what a bum Coach Worthington is for telling me I'm not playing anymore. I'm going to be coaching a seminary. And, and, and when I walked in the door, right on the other side was our bedroom. And, and she's crying out, I go over, she's hemorrhaging. She was about five months pregnant and she's losing the baby. And so I, I literally had to pick her up and I took her to the car and rushed to the emergency room and, and you know, she, she lost the baby. We, we knew that was happening. But now it's, are we going to lose her? She'd lost so much blood. So I'm bloodied and wearing my baseball uniform and the doctor comes out and he says, you know, Ron, She's, she's okay. She's going to survive. Uh, you need to go home and change and get some rest and come back when she's awake. She's, she's out. So, okay, I drove back home. And when I pulled into our little apartment, you know, parking lot there, I was met at my front door by my, my supervisor because I, I painted and wallpapered the apartments. When somebody would move out, I'd come in and get it all ready for the next tenant. And he meets me at the door and he goes, Ron, we're not going to open up the 40 down below, so we don't need you anymore. But we do need your apartment. You got two weeks to move. So I go, two weeks. So I had just been told your your dream is dead. Your you know, career is dead. Baby is gone. Your wife, we think, is going to survive. Your your housing is gone. And that was my only financial income. It's boom, 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 boom. I'd been a Christian at this point about six months. And, and so, you know, it was like God, what? what? What is this? And somehow, you know, I, I went up to the hospital that evening and you know, Janie was going to be okay. So I'd missed so many classes because of baseball that I couldn't afford to miss class the next day. So I go sit in class and I'm sitting there and somehow in, in this fog of, of what's going on, my professor, and I heard him, he said, the Christian life is not difficult. And I must have said out loud, what? Because he repeated it. The Christian life, is not difficult. And as I was about to get out of my chair and show him how difficult his Christian life was about to become, he finished his thought. He goes, it's not difficult. It's impossible. You can't live the Christian life. Everything that I just preached, you can't live the Christian life. Jesus in you lives the life through you when you surrender to him. When you say, I can't forgive that jerk, he goes, I know, but I already have. Let's forgive him through you. When you say, I can't obey that command. I know, but I already have. Let me do that through you. Does that make sense to you? 
That it's not a matter of us trying harder. It's not a matter of us, I'll get up off this cot by myself. I'll be whole. It's when we finally understand Jesus in me. Why do we need to be transformed? I can't do this. It's impossible. It's not just difficult. It's impossible. When he says, love that person, I can't love them. I know, but I already do. So let me do it through you. That's how we become whole. That's how we experience the full, complete, whole life that Jesus wants for us. When we say, I surrender all. All to Jesus. I surrender. I surrender all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Dad, Abba, thank you that we see people in Scripture, warts and all, we see this man lying there, hopeless, probably given up, most definitely in need. And we see ourselves on that same cot. Or at least we need to. We need to see that we too are blind, lame, paralyzed, without you. But Lord, when we surrender to you, when we accept you, when we come to you, you make us whole. And Father, that's our desire. That's our hope. It's our want that we would be whole in you. So if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that needs to have that attitude of surrender, draw them with cords of love. Draw them to you. If there's someone here who's just sitting in that frustration, paralyzed by fear, or even by anger or other emotions, break that cord and draw them with your cords of love. If there's anyone here, Lord, that is just feeling hopeless, show them they, they are, we are, without you. But with you, all things are possible. So Father God, draw us to you as we lift Jesus up. Draw us to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.